Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR at 855 on your AM dial. I'm Amy Thomason. I'm a professor and also a Cooper Fellow of Philosophy at the University of Miami in the at Dartmouth. And I work in the areas of metaphysics, phenomenology, philosophy of mind, social ontology, and philosophy of art. The animals of the world exist for their own reasons. They were not made for humans any more than black people were made for white or women created for men. Alice Walker. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, we're going to be speaking to Associate Professor Kirsten Andrews about the philosophy of animal minds. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Beth. Could you give our listeners a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. I am an American-Canadian philosopher, and I've I'm currently teaching at York University in Toronto in the philosophy department. And when I was studying uh, training in philosophy, I was already interested in animal minds. And this was in the 1990s when it wasn't really very common for philosophers to be talking about animal minds. There were only a few philosophers who, who wrote any papers about animal minds. And I thought that this was something that we needed to pay more attention to if we were going to be studying the mind. Because if we want to know what the mind is like, we need to know about all the diverse kinds of minds that exist on this planet. In the 1990s, we were also starting to look at people with different sort of cognitive capacities. We're looking at children and development. This is when people first started really talking about autism and the philosophy of mind. But there was very little attention to other species. So it's fascinated about trying to figure out what we can learn about the mind from looking at dolphins and orangutans and chimpanzees at that point. What was it that inspired you to study the philosophy of animal minds? Well, it's one of those questions that uh, you can trace back for a very long time. So I can think about when I was a child and how fascinated I was with animals. We had a cat when I was about four years old who adopted us, and my family didn't know anything about cats. We didn't know what cats ate or what they liked to do, and so we just experimented. We gave the cat a banana, and the cat didn't eat a banana, and then we gave the cat tuna fish, and the cat ate the tuna fish. And ever since then, I've been fascinated with what we can learn from other animals. I used to collect frogs and snakes when I got a little older, 
And then I worked at a as an intern at a dolphin cognition laboratory in Hawaii as part of a my education, my undergraduate education at Antioch College, and saw the science in action. And I could have become a scientist at that point and gone into psychology, but I was a philosopher at heart, and I thought, we can learn things from doing the science about the animals. So I went into, I went into philosophy from there, but I've always kept this, this close connection between the science of psychology and biology and uh, the philosophy. What was the aim of your publications? So I have written uh, two books and edited one book, and I've also co-authored a book that's going to be coming out this summer. In my first book, I was arguing for a view of folk psychology, which is the common sense understanding of other minds that decenters this idea that we are attributing beliefs and desires to others in order to understand them. And this book was really intended to get us to think differently about questions regarding theory of mind in children and people with autism, in adults, and in other animals. Because theory of mind is understood as attributing beliefs and desires to others in order to predict what people are going to do next, I thought was something that humans actually don't do very often at all, and it's not as central to everyday uh, social cognition as the philosophers had commonly assumed. So that was the aim of of that book. That book was called uh, Do Apes Read Minds for the New Folk Psychology, MIT Press. Then um, my next book I wrote was on, um, it's called The Animal Mind, and this is kind of an introduction to the philosophy of the animal minds for anybody who is interested in the question of what we can learn about the traditional questions in philosophy mind from looking at non-human animal minds. So I deal with issues like the, the problem of other minds. I deal with methodological questions about how can we correctly attribute content to the minds of other animals, especially given that they don't have the language. Uh, I ask, ask and try to answer questions about consciousness, the nature of belief and concepts, communication, social cognition, and also moral cognition. And then the other two books, the anthology I edited with Jacob Beck is the uh, Rutledge Companion to the Philosophy of Animal Minds. And this is, I think, a beautiful anthology, 49 very short articles written by leading philosophers' mind. And they each are giving an example of what they think we can learn about the mind from looking at, at animal minds. And the animals are everything from bees and ants to orangutans and dolphins. And then finally, the book that's coming out this summer, who I co- that I co-authored with 12 people, is called uh, Chimpanzee Rights, the Philosopher's Brief. And this book is a development of an amicus brief that we recently wrote in support of the Non-Human Rights Project, which is a, a, an American NGO working to get personhood rights for chimpanzees in the U.S., and they have lawsuits ongoing where they're looking to um, have a judge 
issue a writ of habeas corpus to free two chimpanzees that are being held in private captivity in the U.S. They're being held in horrible, isolated conditions, and this is not a a happy zoo or uh, behavioral research facility, but these are privately held chimpanzees that we want released into a sanctuary. So this book is a development of that amicus brief, uh, and we argue that persons, legal persons, should not be identified with members of Homo sapiens. And we identify three uh, arguments for personhood for great apes, suggested by both the Non-Human Rights Project and the judges themselves in their decisions against issuing a writ of habeas corpus for the chimpanzees. We argue that chimpanzees can be persons on a social contract conception of personhood and on a, uh, a community conception of personhood as members of, a, of our human community because we've taken them into our community, and also on a capacities conception given the sort of cognitive and affective capacities that chimpanzees have. So those are a few different aims of a few of those, uh, <laughs> those books I've written. Yes, I have actually heard that chimpanzees can communicate well, with humans, as well as any human can communicate with a human through the use of sign language. Mm-hmm. That's right. There have been a number of different sorts of artificial communication projects that have been taken with chimpanzees. One of the most famous is that started by uh, Sue Savage Rumba with chimpanzees and bonobos, where they use a, a lexicon system. So there are basically colored shapes that stand for verbs and nouns that the chimpanzees and bonobos use in order to indicate the names of objects or where they want to go travel or what sort of food that they want to eat. But also there's been research recently in the field looking at natural gestural communication systems of chimpanzees. And this research suggests that there are some sort of perhaps universal gestures among chimpanzees and also bonobos that the individuals understand pretty naturally. So, for example, a directed scratch where the chimpanzee scratches a certain part of her body and then offers that body to a partner and the partner understands that that was a request to be scratched in that location. Within the field of philosophy, ever since ancient times, well, there has been an interest in animal minds. However, in the last few decades, animal minds has become a major topic. Why why do you think this is? Well, I think part of it is the turn that philosophy has been making recently towards paying attention to empirical research and psychology and biology more generally. So the same as developmental psychology has become more important in philosophy in the last few decades, and anthropology has become more important. We see animal mind, animal cognition research becoming more important. But secondly is that I think that the field of animal cognition research has really come into its own in the last couple of decades. There were there was a, a long time in which there was very little animal cognition research because with the, the behaviors uh, turn in psychology, people were just looking at animal behavior and not at the kind of cognitive mechanisms that would be involved in the behaviors of these animals. 
And when the cognitive revolution happened, it happened first for humans and only later for non-human animals. And the scientists I talked to report that it was quite difficult to get grant funding to do research on non-human animal cognition because there were um, there was a lot of skepticism that there was anything to be studied scientifically when it comes to non-human animals, in part because they don't speak. There's a black box that people didn't know how to access. But with recent developments of behavioral methods and observational methods, experimental methods, and neuroscience, I think that largely the sciences have accepted the minds of other animals and accepted that these are amenable to study. And that's a really exciting uh, a really exciting development for the philosophy of mind that we now have so much more science to pay attention to. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Kirsten Andrews about philosophy of animal minds. Now, could you give us a, a definition of what cognition is? That's a, a tricky question. So I'll do my best by giving a definition of cognition. Cognition, most generally, is thought to be that which is in the middle of inputs and outputs of behavior. So some people think of this in terms of information processing on a computer model. You give the computer some inputs, the computer processes those inputs, and then comes out with uh, an answer to the question, uh, some sort of an output. What the shape of that, uh, that intermediate process is is certainly something that's under debate by people. But the idea that underlies cognition is that behavior can be flexible. So with the same sort of immediate inputs, we can, in a sense, choose how we're going to act. So if I see a bear on the path and you see a bear on the path, one of us, we have the same inputs, that's the bear on the path. One of us might run really fast and the other might freeze and not move at all. And this might be due to the prior learning that we had about how to interact with bears, what you ought to do when you run across a bear. If you didn't have that training, you might run. If you didn't have that training, then you'd act differently. So one of the ways we look for evidence of cognition in non-human animals is we look to see whether an individual animal or species shows flexible behavior. If individuals can act differently, given the same input. Does behavior have a cognitive basis? So I, I think that behavior has a cognitive basis. If you understand behavior as intentional action, action that's done as a result of a cognitive process. So you can distinguish something like an automatic withdrawal of a hand from a hot stove, which would be something that isn't going to have a cognitive basis. No information processing is needed. You don't have to figure out the stove is hot. Decide you don't want to burn your flesh and then withdraw your hand. So that's an automatic movement. But the sort of behaviors that we engage in, say putting our hand up to hail a taxi or deciding to cross the street or deciding that this is a friendly dog I'm going to pet, those behaviors are going to have a cognitive basis because, again, you can choose not to do them in a sense. We could decide not to cross the street 
or not to pet the dog. Yes. Um, look, fish tend to go into tend to be put in a different category, don't they? Do they? Do you think that fish really have any consciousness? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've been talking about chimpanzees and dolphins and orangutans and these kind of animals that we often think of as smart and minded. But when we look at other species, like fish species, bony fish species, carp or salmon or trout, people don't often tend to think of them in the same way as orangutans and chimpanzees and dolphins. But what the science is telling us is that these kind of bony fish do seem to have a lot of affective and cognitive capacities uh, and some of the same ones that we see in these big gregarious mammals. So there's been research done on fish suggesting, first of all, that fish feel pain. This has been both behavioral and neuroscientific research. But one of the things that that we all recognize is that when we're in pain, we don't really feel like doing much. We're not really hungry. We're not in a good position to learn something new. And we're not as uh, afraid of things that might be in our environment because we're focused on this painful experience we're having. And researchers have found that the same is true of fish. So if you take bee venom, or vinegar, and inject it into the lip of a fish, and then try to uh, teach the fish something new, they won't learn it, even if they can learn the, the task normally. They also stop eating after they've been injected with a bee venom. And they also don't seem scared when a new object is placed in their tank, even though normally they would avoid a new object placed in their tank. But then, if the fish is given an analgesic after being exposed to the bee venom, the normal sort of behavior returns. They'll learn again, they'll start eating again, they'll show fear of a novel object. And these sorts of behavioral cues suggest that fish are similar to us in their experience of pain, that they have sensations of pain, they have an experience, they're conscious and that uh, it impacts their ability to learn, their ability to flourish, just like us. So these are some very interesting findings that, that we see when it comes to fish. Similarly, research is being done on insects, suggesting that insects are also conscious and feel experiences. So, for example, there's some evidence that bees are, will react with stress when they're when their hive is shaken, so we are not alone. We mammal are not alone. It seems when it comes to to being conscious. Can empirical evidence about animal behaviour help us understand philosophical theories of consciousness? Well, I certainly think that empirical evidence about animal behaviour is going to help us develop better theories of consciousness. Because just if you think about any other sort of investigation, if we want to understand a phenomenon and this phenomenon is distributed in a population, we want to make sure that our sample reflects the distribution of, um, of the population. So say in medicine, we want to study the effectiveness of a certain kind of drug. 
we don't want to just test it on 12-year-old boys, but we want to see that it works across ages, across gender, and, and so on. So the same goes with consciousness. If we've developed our theories of consciousness based only on thinking about adult human minds, then we're very likely going to over-specify what's required for consciousness and miss out on some of the important, perhaps necessary conditions for consciousness that we do see in ants and bumblebees and fish, as well as in orangutans, dolphins, and humans. So having this wide base to start with, I think, is, is essential from a methodological perspective for coming up with a good theory of consciousness. But then again, that raises the question of how do we know what is conscious without a good theory of consciousness? I just gave you this kind of behavioral evidence uh, of consciousness in fish by using a kind of argument from analogy. Oh, when we're in pain, we can't learn, we don't eat. Here, look, this um, bee venom and, and acid causes pain in us. We're going to inject it in fish and see that fish also won't eat and don't learn when they've been infected in this, so they probably are feeling the same sort of thing. So that's one kind of philosophical argument we can give for the experience of pain or emotion or consciousness more generally in other species without yet having a theory of consciousness. But another kind of argument that we can give for consciousness in other species without yet having a theory of consciousness is an inference to the best explanation argument. We can ask ourselves, why else would these fish be acting in these ways when exposed to a bee venom or vinegar other than conscious experience? And if we can't come up with any other good reason that fits in with our other scientific evidence, then we're left with the explanation that they're conscious. And in this case, we do have, I think, a very strong inference to the best explanation argument for consciousness in these in these other taxa. Yeah, you just mentioned a, a couple of times about fish being able to to learn. There's a television ad in Australia just recently, and it's sort of making fun of the fact that, well, maybe not. It's not a fact, but that. Um, goldfish only have a three-second memory and that's why it's not cruel to put them in a small tank and they swim around because after three seconds they've forgotten what what they've actually done in the previous three seconds. Is this true? Well, I don't know about dogfish, but I do know that a number of fish species can remember for much longer than three seconds. They can learn how to run mazes. Zebrafish, for example, are able to recognise color, black black versus white, or patterns on walls of a maze and make decisions about which way to go in a maze. I don't know about dogfish, but I think that, you know, species are different. It's possible that dogfish only have a three-second memory, but I'd like to see the empirical evidence that supported that. Mm, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's quite amazing. What, what other things can fish learn? That's a good question. There's some reports about fish uh, species cooperatively hunting with other fish species, I believe with eels. That might be something that fish learn. I'm not sure. In the lab, most of the research has been done on things like maze running, 
and also uh, what's described as transitive reasoning when it comes to dominance. So, for example, if you put fighting fish, expose fighting fish to in a situation such that there's an observer fighting fish and it sees fish number A and or fish A and B fight with one another, and let's say A wins the fight over B, and then B is placed in an enclosure with C, and let's say B wins over C, and then C is placed in another enclosure and fights with D, and C wins over D. Then when that fish who observed all this sees fish D fight with fish A, the observer will expect that A will win the fight. So they seem to be able to learn things about social dominance and hierarchy through observation as well. So thank you very much for coming onto the program today. It's been my pleasure, Beth. Thank you very much for having me. And I've been speaking to Associate Professor Kirsten Andrews about the philosophy of animal mind. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. Do tune in next week for Part 2.